Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We can break down this uh, story here on Nike uh, with Poonam Goyle. She is the retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. She follows this stuff. Uh, she's done it for decades. She knows what's happening. So... Poonam, thanks so much for joining us here. Is this a, a Nike issue? Is this just a reflection of the consumer? What's going on? It's definitely not a Nike issue. It's more a reflection of the consumer and just the macro environment that we operate in. You know, when you look at the results that Nike posted and you just look at the different geographies that they operate in, the miss was really in two geographies. One was China and two was EMEA. Now the China miss, consensus was looking for a 12.5% increase on sales in constant currency. They posted an 8% increase. That's not so bad. I mean, it's definitely you know behind consensus, but 8% growth is still pretty respectable. Now, when you look at EMEA, the negative 3% that we saw there versus an estimate for a low single digit gain, there I think you know weather was really the culprit on apparel sales which hurt them. And that's something that we wouldn't be too concerned with when we think about Nike for the longer term, because those kind of situations have been flow. All right. So here we go. Hold on. Let's go to the, let's, I'm going to go back to an earlier issue we were discussing, um, Simone, tennis shoes versus sneakers. And Eric Mollo, our producer, popped something in the chat here, a map showing the United States and where people call it tennis shoes and where they call it sneakers. So like the Northeast, kind of like from, Pennsylvania up to the Northeast, sneakers. Southern Florida, sneakers. The rest of the country, including Alaska, tennis shoes. I don't buy it. You don't buy that? But Poonam, what do you call, what do you call them? I call them sneakers. See, Poonam's See? the expert. She's, <laughs> She's the expert. Um, that must be an interesting conversation to have at uh, industry events. I'm bringing, right? Well, in Chicago and Cincinnati, you might lace up your, quote, gym shoes. 
That I've heard, actually. You've heard gym shoes? Okay. I have. I, I'm sneaks. You know, sneakers, sneaks, <laughs> that's the way you go. Um, Poonam, I, I want to get your sense. How much is this a story of sneakers? How much is this a story of apparel? And how much is this, a, you know, athletic wear? And how much is this a story of overall apparel? Sure. So I think the bigger story here, which has been the story for some time, is broader apparel weakness. Now, we have seen this across the board because inventories were too high, and that's what caused apparel to be marked down. Now, the other thing with apparel is versus footwear, it's for Nike. Nike is dominant in footwear, but when it comes to apparel, they don't have that lead that they have in footwear with rivals. So it's anyone's game when it comes to apparel, and Nike has to fight for its share. So it's, it's definitely a tougher marketplace. Though when it comes to footwear, I think they do have a lead. I think it comes back to innovation, which they're pressing the pedal harder on, and that will continue to really help them maintain that lead. So footwear, I do think they're very strong in, and you could argue that you know there's been competition from companies like Hoka and on, especially on the running side, but those brands are very small. When you look at Nike's footwear market and its size there, it's multiple folds of those smaller brands, and we, we don't see them losing that lead especially with Jordan, right? Jordan's positioned to be the second largest global footwear brand or athleisure brand in the world. And that says something for the Nike flagship. But we also heard Nike introducing about $2 billion worth of cost cuts over the next three years. Will that impact innovation? I don't think so, because the cost cuts are not going to be um, to limit innovation or to really reduce the spending on innovation. They're really happening on the operations side where they may have had redundancy and they're cutting back staff or they're just reorganizing to make matters more efficient. It's more about driving efficiencies. So you could argue that, you know, maybe they were too layered to start with and now they're just peeling off those layers. I don't think this will impact their roadmap for innovation to drive newness into the business, especially in footwear. So Simone, I don't, you know, Poonam's a, one of the top retail analysts on Wall Street her job, a big part of her job is literally going to shopping malls hmm. and just watching people. What are they buying? What is, what's hot? Where, where's the traffic going? How are the promotions out there? Um, and we actually pay her to do this stuff. Um, Poonam, what are you seeing here on the, this, this holiday shopping? What's your outlook here for holiday uh, shopping overall? I think we're going to have a really good holiday season fall, um, irrespective of what we have heard about the U.S. consumer and how they're shopping, where they're shopping. The stores are crowded. People are buying stuff online. Um, trucks are being seen all over the U.S. delivering multiple boxes. Lobbies are full. So it will be a good holiday. The question is, what happens after holiday? Do we go into a lull? Do you Have you bought everything that you wanted and now you're just going to take a break? And that's really what we'll see into 2024. But for now, people are spending. They're using more buy now, pay later mediums, alternative payment mediums, to facilitate the spend, which is also something we'll be watching for. But holiday spend online, in stores, looks robust, especially at the key that have done a good job in just, you know, harping their value message and also driving unique product into their stores and online businesses. Are there any sectors of the broader retail space that may benefit going into next year? What's your take on that? I think the online retailers are well positioned going into 2024 because 
now things have normalized where, you know, we were past the pandemic and people went to stores that wanted to go to stores. They have that experience there. But now convenience comes back into play. You want to be able to shop from your home, shop wherever you want, and just have things delivered to you, especially as things are coming faster now with two-day shipping, one-day shipping, with buy with Prime that's being rolled out to um, companies that don't typically sell on Amazon, but to be able to use that service. So we do think that consumers will lean back a little more on digital in 2024 than on stories. All right, Poonam Goyal, thank you so much. We appreciate that. Poonam Goyal, she's a senior retail analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, one of the best on Wall Street, uh, giving, again, a sense of kind of where the trends are for consumers and what retailers are best positioned to meet those. So check out uh, Bloomberg's, uh, uh, Poonam's research on Bloomberg Intelligence. You can go to BIGO on the terminal and get all of the uh, research from Bloomberg Intelligence, including Poonam stuff here. So mm-hmm. it's good stuff. And, and it's calling for a decent holiday are you done your shopping which, which is interesting because you know traffic in store was so uh lackluster it seemed like on black friday uh no i have not done all my holiday shopping so you need to get going there um i need to <laughs> click click a few buttons myself um i'm actually waiting for a couple of things that have not been delivered one by amazon and one by another retailer so maybe some, some supply chain issues out there Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We welcome now our Bloomberg television and radio audiences. The top story, of course, today, cooling inflation in the United States. Call PCE barely rising in November. You want a cool figure? Take a look at the six-month annualized number. The call metric there up 1.9%, i.e. below 2%. Let's get some reaction from Washington. Leo Brainard, director of the National Economic Council at the White House and, of course, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, joins us now along with our own Kaylee Lyons. Leo Brainard, great to see you. We've all been anticipating this number and looking forward to seeing exactly what it was going to deliver and what the data are going to deliver. It's a really solid number. I'm wondering whether we are now at the point where we can declare victory, whether it is time for a victory lap, whether the inflation dragon 
has now been slain. Well, uh, look, it is really good to see that we're closing out the year with inflation on a six-month basis at 2%. That's the pre-pandemic benchmark, and it's a very significant milestone. And if you look back over the course of the year, it is really stunning how much progress uh, the economy has made. Inflation's come down faster than even the more optimistic forecasts and growth has remained very resilient uh, along with a strong employment. If you recall a year ago, the consensus projection was that getting inflation down would require a spike in unemployment and a recession. Uh, but in fact, the unemployment rate has remained below 4% for 22 months in a row. And of course, we're still seeing more data suggesting growth is resilient. But no, uh, it is not time to uh, rest. It is time to continue working. Uh, and that's what the president is determined to do, uh, keep working uh, to keep uh, bringing down prices uh, and improving uh, the economy from the middle out and the bottom up. Well, and Director Brainerd, it's Kaylee in Washington. Obviously, he has tried to do that domestically, but geopolitics are a factor here as well. If it's not time yet to declare victory on inflation, if there may still be upside risks to inflation out there, how worried are you about what's happening in the Red Sea and what it could mean for energy prices and supply chains? Well, uh, the uh, Red Sea situation is one that we are monitoring very closely. Our national security team uh, is in uh, constant contact uh, with partners in the region, uh, with shippers, uh, and we are doing everything we can to make sure uh, that those uh, shipping routes disruptions uh, do not lead to broader disruptions, supply chain disruptions in the U.S. economy. And of course, we're much better equipped today than we were uh, just uh, two or three years ago because we have, under the president's leadership, done so much to work in partnership with the private sector on supply chain resilience. Dr. Brainerd, are you confident that the current outlook when it comes to wages is consistent with, let's call it 2% and the target that we're all shooting for here? Are you confident that some of the deals that have been done this year that are going to take effect next year are going to really take us in that direction? Well, as you said yourself, that core number, uh, which is the really uh, important uh, number on inflation, is actually slightly below 2% on a six-month basis. Uh, and that should give everyone a lot of confidence uh, that uh, inflation is sustainably uh, down and we can continue to see a good uh, growth in real uh, disposable incomes. Uh, in real wages. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the real uh, disposable income uh, growth over the past year that we saw today, 3.7%, very strong. Uh, and it is coming in the context of rising productivity. You can see that in the last year, productivity has been uh, nearly 2.5%. So that gives room uh, for American workers to continue to enjoy uh, that take-home pay that allows them to purchase $3,500 more today than they could pre-pandemic. 
Okay, so let's talk about American workers, or perhaps more specifically, Director Brainerd, American voters. You've mentioned a few times here the work the president has done on addressing supply chains, on trying to bring inflation down. And clearly the economic data supports this idea that the economy is held in there even as price pressures have eased. What it is not reflected, though, is in the president's approval in consistent polling we are seeing. It's not really a question of whether there is a disconnect, because clearly there is one. But how do you advise the president as an economic advisor how to address it? What does he need to do? Yeah, so when I talk to the president, he is focused on one thing. He always wants to know what does the strong data, the strong economy mean for American workers? What does it mean for their wages, their wallets? We've already noted that uh, American consumers are now seeing uh, declines in prices uh, over the year on things that really matter to them, a gallon of gas, a gallon of milk, toys for the holiday season, appliances, and, you know, for the holidays, car rentals and airfares, those are all down over the year. Wealth is up 37% uh, since before the pandemic. Homeownership is up. Housing wealth is up. Retirement accounts, as you know, uh, is up. And today we saw consumer sentiment jumping. Uh, and that's the biggest uh, jump we have seen in years, which suggests uh, that Americans may finally beginning to feel a little bit more confident, a little bit more secure. Uh, but the president is going to continue to push us to uh, work to lower costs for American families and to keep uh, these gains uh, over the course of the next uh, year and years. Do you think these, these gains in inflation should be taken for granted, Dr. Brainard? The, the financial markets are pricing in six rate cuts for next year. Do you think this is an economy that needs that, that level of easing? So, uh, look, this is a president who respects the independence of the Federal Reserve, so I won't comment on Federal Reserve uh, policymaking. Sure. What I can say uh, is that the conditions uh, are very favorable in the sense that inflation has come down to 2% on a six-month basis much earlier than people predicted at a time where the uh, labor market is in much better balance. And, and why? It's because supply chains have healed and workers are coming back into the labor force at much larger numbers, 3.3 uh, million over the last year alone. Uh, so that work on supply chains that the president has really pushed forward since the first month of his presidency is showing up in those lower inflation prints. Uh, and the market does seem to be taking that uh, to a more benign um, uh, set of interest rates. I mean, you look at mortgage rates, one and a half percentage point decrease in mortgage rates just over the last few months. Yeah. That's very welcome. So I understand the restraint around what you can say on the monetary policy side, but I wonder what all of this means on the fiscal policy side of the equation as well. Knowing when Congress returns in January, there is going to be a massive spending fight that has to take place in terms of the budget. Are we looking at a U.S. economy right now that is able to withstand greater fiscal restraint? Well, this economy has proven to be remarkably resilient, defying all the predictions uh, and looks to close out this year certainly on a much stronger uh, level of growth than had been anticipated. Uh, in terms of the fiscal trajectory, President Biden really wants to see uh, the agreement that he put in place that would cut an additional $1 trillion uh, in spending a bipartisan budget deal, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, 
uh, to be an, uh, put into place. Uh, Congress needs to move forward uh, and do its job. And of course, he's already seen a $1 trillion reduction uh, in deficits just in the time since he's been in office. So we'll continue to work with Congress on a bipartisan basis. The president is really very focused on being uh, fiscally sustainable. Does, does being fiscally sustainable mean as well that we need lower interest rates? There is a there's a growing discussion about the interest bill that the American economy now carries, uh, that the federal government now carries. Significantly lower interest rates obviously would make that challenge much, much easier to handle. Do you think there is a case of, of fiscal dominance beginning to emerge in the United States, that, that the economy is not capable of sustaining itself unless it has lower interest rates, given the interest bill that has now been built up? Well, I would come at it uh, from the reverse direction and simply say that the benign data that we are seeing that suggests that inflation really is sustainably coming down on the back of these great improvements in supply chains with uh, the inflation on a six-month basis now at the 2% pre-pandemic benchmark. That's a benign outlook uh, that will be uh, much uh, better for our fiscal outlook uh, all around uh, in terms of growth, uh, revenues, um, and uh, the, the longer run fiscal sustainability. So this is a benign outlook. And yes, it's very positive, I think, for the fiscal trajectory. Uh, but there's more work to do there. I'd like to switch uh, topics, if if we can, to something else that you've addressed this week, which is the proposed takeover of a Japanese steel company, Nippon Steel, and U.S. Steel. You have written in response to this that the purchase of an iconic American-owned company by a foreign entity, even one from a close ally, deserves serious scrutiny. Why does a U.S. ally as close as Japan deserve this scrutiny? Well, I think it is longstanding uh, position of the U.S. government and uh, longly held, long held view of President Biden uh, that steel is a very vital sector for U.S. national security uh, and for uh, critical supply chain resilience. And we've seen that in past policies that have been undertaken by this president. Uh, so uh, it is important. Um, to uh, review uh, or to uh, make sure that there is serious uh, scrutiny of these kinds of transactions from the perspective of national security and supply chain resilience. While we continue, of course, to welcome uh, investment uh, from abroad and uh, have seen record foreign direct investment in the U.S. economy. Dr. Brain, have you spoken to, has the administration spoken to the United Steelworkers on this, this issue? Have you got any feedback from them? And is that feedback influencing in any way you're thinking? Well, I will say uh, that uh, the steelworkers are a vital part of our steel uh, strength here in uh, the U.S. Uh, they are partners uh, with uh, industry and uh, they are at the center of uh, President Biden's uh, vision for growing the economy from the middle out and the bottom up. Uh, so uh, it is important to continue to see uh, strong, good union jobs uh, continuing to sustain 
our steel industry, which is vital to U.S. manufacturing, vital to our supply chains, vital to our national security. We really appreciate your time today. Have a very happy holiday. We end on a good note with that data. Leo Brainard, Director of the National Economic Council. And of course, our thanks to Bloomberg's Kaylee Lyons. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Lots of economic data today. Personal income, PC deflator uh, on the inflation front, durable goods, uh, you know, you mish. Uh, coming in a little bit better than expected. They don't just have a good football team. They have good economists over there at the <laughs> University of Michigan. So some pretty solid data coming across. Let's check in with Stuart Paul. Another good economist. Another good economist. Bloomberg Economics. Now, he usually joins us in studio, but he's joining us via Zoom here today. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say he might be at Wyndham Mountain. Um, now, he's got this That's kind right. of That's cheesy right. background on a Zoom, which I'm not buying whatsoever, because I think if he, we really had the real background, it would be like the slopes of Wyndham Mountain. Uh, Stuart, I got to ask you, where are you, dude? I'm in Wyndham. There we got you a go. Nice light, a light dusting of snow. And as soon as I hang up with you guys, I'm going out for a hike. All the data is out. The data <laughs> was a gift to Jay Powell. I'm taking it personally as a gift for the holidays. And after this, I'm done. And just full disclosure on, on behalf of Stuart, he is an all-mountain ski patroller at Wyndham Mountain Resort. Um, he's been doing that for many years, so uh, that's good stuff there. So, Stuart, what did you take away from, again, a lot of this uh, data this morning? It seems, I guess, give a little bit more leeway for the Fed to be a little dovish here, maybe. It does. It does. But the real question that we need to be thinking about in the background is just why does the data look as good as it does? So we saw headline PC inflation actually deflation during the month of November because energy prices globally declined. So we got 10 basis points of deflation for the headline. Core PCE inflation slowed to just 10 basis points, allowing the six-month annualized pace of core inflation uh, to decline to 1.9%. So if the Fed is thinking about what trend core inflation looks like, they're thinking, oh, wow, it's actually at our target. But in the background, we have a lot of core goods deflation during the month. And if you think, as we do, that destocking of inventories will allow firms, particularly goods producers and retailers, to avoid price cuts in the future, then that drag that we're getting from core goods would be set to reverse, at which point we would have about 3% annualized core inflation. So. If that inventory destocking takes place, it's not really the case that the Fed can declare a mission accomplished on inflation quite yet. So then if they if we see that, um, does that uh, threaten the three cuts next year that we outlook that we heard from the Fed or does it simply threaten the potential timeline? It, as far as I'm concerned, it does not threaten the Fed's forecast of three uh, of three cuts. What it does threaten is the market pricing that's showing, you know, nearly double that. Um, so that, that's what's going on in the inflation front. If the fundamentals that uh, that we think are going on in the background, in addition to inflation, if we think that the labor market, for example, starts loosening more materially, which we expect, but let's face it, others out there don't, if that starts taking place, 
then we expect the Fed's going to revise its inflation forecast to show actually more cuts than it currently is showing, even if it means that inflation has yet to fully reach the target. It's just the case that the last mile of disinflation is difficult. So my personal Paul Sweeney daily inflation gauge is gasoline, $3.12 a gallon. That's down just big time just over the past a few months here. So talk to us about, you mentioned before, the impact on energy. And, and you got to adjust for that, don't you? And I guess when you do, maybe you're a little bit less sanguine about the inflation abating. Yeah, so declining energy prices does allow for declining headline inflation. More importantly, probably for the Fed, is that declining energy prices matters a lot for consumers and their inflation expectations, and inflation expectations matter a lot for consumer behavior. So, for example, if folks think that prices are going to be much higher in the future, they go out and rush and buy goods and services today, and that actually begets inflation in the future. Seeing declining gasoline prices helps consumers to uh, to slow their roll a little bit. And it does allow for softening consumer inflation expectations, which we saw in UMICH today, particularly in year ahead inflation expectations. And it does allow them to sort of slow the pace of their spending, which we've seen. There has been a little bit of a shift from consumer spending on goods for which they have inelastic demand to, to nerd out a little bit. But it allowed them to uh, to get a little bit of savings on gasoline that was directed actually a little bit more to holiday shopping we saw in the PCE report. But uh, we don't think that that really has legs. If you look at credit card data through December rather than just the November PCE report, it, sales are a little bit more tepid. Consumers are taking that gasoline savings and just kind of sitting on it a little bit in December. So. Uh, we're not fully out of the woods in terms of an economic slowdown quite yet. This has been a political, um, I guess, issue that's come up. You know, uh, Biden very unhappy, according to reports, that people aren't feeling the impact of his economic policies. Uh, people seemingly trusting the Republicans more um, on uh, the economy than the current Democratic administration. Now, I'm not going to ask you to weigh in on politics, <laughs> but what kind of indicators do you need to see um, to think, hey, well, consumers actually think that the economy is good now. How far are we from that point? So at least in terms of election outcomes, and I'm not speaking as a, a political anim analyst, but strictly as a statistician and as an economist, it really matters where the economy is three to six months before the election. There's still a lot of the game to be played before then. There's still a lot of data that we're going to see before then. Uh, and if we start getting rate cuts in Q1, uh, that could help uh, to avoid the worst case economic scenarios. And that could be helpful for the administration in the 2024 election cycle. Uh, but again, it depends why we're getting those rate cuts potentially in Q1. If we're getting those rate cuts because we see the unemployment rate uh, inching up, not just inching up, but gapping up, which tends to be the case once SOMS rule is triggered. If we see the unemployment rate gapping up and that's why we get those rate cuts, it probably would not be enough to offset any sort of uh, alleviation of, uh, of interest rate pressures and financing costs uh, that consumers might find helpful, that uh, softening the labor market would be more influential in determining election outcomes than say the change in interest rates. So, Stuart, uh, bottom line, Bloomberg Economics, what is your GDP call for 2024? 
Well, so for Q4 specifically, we have an estimate of 1.1% Q over Q annualized. Uh, again, you know, that's better than we would have been anticipated. As we do more of the bottoms up work and as we get more of the data, uh, things are looking a bit better than we would have expected, especially a year ago. Uh, but we're not quite out of the woods yet. We are still expecting a bit of a slowdown. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, we think that that's the reason why the Fed is going to have to start cutting rates in 2024. What's the black swan for you looking ahead to next year? Um, look, uh, I think think that there's still a lot of risk around commercial real estate. I don't know if that's totally a black swan because, you know, it is what a lot of folks are keeping their eye on. But uh, in terms of what could be a major shock to the system, I think that that's probably it. The ability of banks to work with uh, their borrowers so that they don't have to take back keys, the ability for banks to work with their regulators, perhaps uh, to allow those banks to lend to borrowers. Um, at below market rates that those borrowers could then cash flow any sort of debt obligations that they have, uh, which regulators, frankly, don't love. Uh, they don't love when banks are lending at below market rates. Those are the sort of, uh, those are the sort of financial conditions issues uh, that are a bit orthogonal to most of the economic data that we think about day to day. And so it could catch some folks by surprise just because it's, sort of retreated to the back of everybody's minds. All right, Stuart, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate it. I know it's been a busy morning for you with all the economic data hitting the tape here. Stuart Paul, he's a U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics. Go hit the, the mountain uh, and enjoy the day. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Everything seems to be going to the cloud, all types of applications. Why not space? Our next guest is, he's there already, Peter Platzer, CEO and founder, Spire Global, which is a New York Stock Exchange listed company, SPIR Go, based in 
Boulder, Colorado. Uh, as a parent of a UC graduate, I spent a lot of time in Boulder. Great town there. Uh, Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us what Spire Global does. What's your biz? Wonderful, excited to be here. Spire collects uh, hard to acquire data from space through satellites that help humanity tackle some of our greatest challenges, uh, often related to climate change and global security. And we do this with the world's largest multipurpose satellite fleet, over 100 spacecraft that cover the Earth every 15 minutes, every spot on Earth. What is driving uh, various different companies to want to have a satellite? Like, what are the key trends behind this market at the moment? And who are you trying to sell your space as a service, uh, as it were, uh, model to? A hundred percent. So companies that want to help humanity, for example, tackle wildfires or measure greenhouse gases. Uh, those are companies that leverage our space as a service model which you can think of as like Amazon AWS, but for space. So if you got a cool application, but you don't want to learn about quaternions and licenses and rockets and everything else that makes space complicated and, and very, very hard to, uh, to tackle, then you come to us and in a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year, you have your application running. So those are then companies that really have their own application or payload that, for example, can detect a tiny wildfire or can see where greenhouse gases are emitted. Or if you are uh, someone who has long pipelines and you have like little sensors that measure where something might go wrong, you know, they do that. You know, that's an Internet of Things application. So all of those come to us because it's fast, it's easy, it's cost effective. And they're listening to, uh, you know, maybe the report that McKinsey sent out recently saying that if you don't have a space strategy today, you better get one. Interesting. So, Peter, does your company, do you own the satellites or do you lease uh, capacity on other satellites? No, they are all our own spacecraft, our own technology. So everything we do is invented by Spire. This is why it works so well and so reliably. And we can make those offers at a very, very competitive um, uh, economic price point for our customers. And we get to scale very, very efficiently because it is in-house. So those are our own spacecraft, our own technology. It's also our own ground station network and is our own operation system that manages this very, very complex infrastructure. And it's not like a single satellite for a single company necessarily. Um, you've got a lot of satellites. You can run a lot of different operations and use that network uh, to, to back uh, companies. Am I right in thinking that? You are 100% spot on, quite the opposite. So our spacecraft are multi-purpose. So they serve not just um, uh, uh, a particular customer, but they serve many, many customers across many, many industries. Because one of the power of that infrastructure is, is that you collect the data set once, and then you sell it in almost unlimited amount of time, serving a large number of use cases. We had um, a, a very, very well-known partner, Assess, how many major use cases they could find. And after 175, they said, Peter, we're going to stop counting here. There is a <laughs> massive amount of use cases. But for us to serve an additional use case, it's not a new spacecraft. It's not a new satellite. It's not more spacecraft, more satellites. It is the same data that is already collected, just packaged in a different way to serve yet another use case for a different type of customer. So, Peter, who's a, who's a typical customer of Spire? Like, Get a sense of kind of the use cases here. 
Yeah, so uh, about 50% of our business is uh, commercial and about 50% of our business is government. So if you are um, a company that, for example, is in charge of logistics, well, one of the big things you need to know is like, where is all this stuff? Which means you need to know where are all the ships and where are all the planes? Well, you know, Spire is a company that can help you with that. If you are in, an, in the energy business, you know, it's particularly renewable energy, but also, you know, electricity, you need to understand what is the weather going to be on one hand to understand demand for electricity, but on the other hand, you also want to understand, okay, what's kind of like the risk of something going wrong because of high winds or because um, a, a fire breaking out from lightning, well, then you come to Spire. If you are a, a maritime insurance company um, that wants to know, well, where are all the assets that you insure? Well, you come to Spire. If you're a commodity trader that really tries to get a handle of supply and demand for, for many commodities, in particular oil and gas, but also others, then you come to Spire. If you are an airline that needs to run better and smoother operations or an airport that wants to improve its throughput and have a really, really smooth and efficient ground operation, then you come to Spire. I could keep on going probably for a couple more hours <laughs> to run through the use cases, but maybe you get a sense now. I do. Um, Peter, I think anything, any business that sends ships or rockets or airplanes into the air is extremely capital intensive. I know you guys have been on a mission to get cash flow positive by year end. That's according to a filing uh, last month. Um, a, is that still in the cards? Um, and B, I guess, how do you, how do you, how do you deal with the extraordinary uh, capital intensity of, of running a business like this? So um, the, the first thing is that you stop making it capital um, uh, expensive and you make it capital efficient. So for Spire, um, as we have uh, published, to build all of our infrastructure and maintain it and run it in the space and on the ground is just a fixed amount of somewhere between seven and nine million dollars a year. So it's a very manageable small amount that supports a quasi unlimited amount of revenue because we keep on collecting this data and then sell it in a quasi unlimited amount of time. And the reason why Spire is able to do this because we are a fully vertically integrated company. It is our IP, our technology, we build it ourselves um, uh, in our facilities. And that has allowed us to take the capital intensity out of an operation like space and make it very, very capital light, very, very capital efficient, just the same way as you would look at other subscription businesses that collect a very, very valuable data source and then monetize right. it. For us, it's a small amount of money on an annual basis yep. that is fixed, supporting a very large revenue. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Peter Platzer, CEO and founder of Spire Global. S-P-I-R is the ticker. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.